So welcome to another episode of the Privileged Man podcast, where I'm delighted to be in conversation with Dr. Dan Poulter, who has been the MP for Central Suffolk and North Ipswich since May 2010. Dan is also a psychiatrist. Between 2012 and 2015, he was a government health minister with responsibilities including maternity, child health, veterans health, NHS procurement, NHS estates, and the NHS workforce. He is currently co-chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Global Health and a member of the Energy and Net Zero House of Commons Select Committee. Dan has extensive knowledge and public policy expertise in health and social care, energy and climate change, agriculture, international development, public sector procurement and drugs laws. He still works as an NHS doctor in the field of mental health, liaison psychiatry and addictions on a part-time basis. I really enjoyed speaking with Dan. I found him remarkably authentic and real as a member of parliament and an extremely knowledgeable psychiatrist. As ever, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, give us five stars, leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and share episodes with your friends and family. The more the podcast is listened to, the bigger the impact. Now, on to the main event. Dan, welcome to the Privileged Man podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. That's no, great to be with you. Uh, you specialise in addiction, normally treating people with dependency on alcohol and drugs. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I'm a general adult psychiatrist, but I've got uh, quite extensive experience of looking after people with uh, harmful and or dependent use of uh, uh, alcohol and uh, a variety of street drugs. And do you see the same psychological issues with addictions across the board in terms of alcohol, drugs, gambling, uh, sex, or are they different? Well, we know there's a very uh, strong overlay of poor mental health and you know, what we call dual diagnosis of mental illness and substance misuse um, and in many cases, substance dependency. Now, that can be anything from people using alcohol and or drugs to as a way of initially managing some difficult emotions that they're experiencing or trying to, if you like, suppress or drown out those emotions. But very quickly, the use of alcohol and drugs becomes counterproductive. And we find that actually people's mental health um, will deteriorate if you are dependent on alcohol or drugs, uh, or you're someone who is uh, a consistently uh, harmful user. Really interesting. One of the things I'm really aware of now, particularly having children and particularly thinking towards is the prevalence of porn and it being a it being something that has gone from when I grew up and when you grew up, something that you would be on the top shelf of magazines and news agents, but now is an industry that is available to children, to men, to women. If you've got a smartphone, you can access it. And often it's degrading towards women. It's certainly brainwashing users into what sex should be or could be. And as a result, I think it's causing immense mental health issues. And I see it only getting worse as technology such as virtual reality kick in and become more and more lifelike. So the question for you from a political angle and from a clinical angle why is porn legal? I suppose it is if people want to watch porn as long as there is nothing that is being done against somebody's will um, or uh, without somebody's permission 
or there's no involvement of uh, minors and or animals or other areas where the law quite rightly needs to step in and, and protect. And if people want to film themselves having sex for others to watch, and if other people want to watch it, then that's a matter for, for those those individuals. And uh, I think in a society where we are effectively a free society, it would be quite it would be a retrograde grade step, in my view, to ban things unless there is an exceptionally good reason to do so. Now, that's not to say that I don't dis- I don't disagree because I fully agree with a lot of the points that you made a few moments ago about the unhealthy nature of pornography and how it appears that increasingly young people learn about sex from what they learn on the internet and what they learn uh, through watching pornographic films. And that's not a very healthy way to understand how to interact with another human being and what is a very uh, intimate uh, activity. So as a society, as we have embraced technology in a more virtual world, that has also been detrimental in many respects to how we uh, understand human relationships and how to interact with others in some of the most intimate areas of our own lives. So from a political angle, like I understand that in terms of keeping it, keeping the world free and there being free speech. But are you not really worried about how this is going to continue to have a significant effect on society? I mean, we're already seeing things like birth rates drop. We're seeing men's testosterone levels drop. I can't say that this is all down to porn, of course, but there is a part that it's playing. I'm just really intrigued as to just explore like how or why that is not being taken more seriously. Porn has become perhaps a much bigger issue now than it was perhaps 20 years ago. And it is something that you know, people we maybe need to evaluate in terms of actually how that is being is detrimental for individuals in their own lives, but at a wider level to um, how we interact as human beings with each other, because sexual activity is a, a natural part of life. And we want people to be able to interact in a kind way in, in that kind of intimate activity where people are treated with respect and in a fulfilling way. And the concern, I suppose, um, is that if people are learning about how to interact with other people from the internet or from videos, that that potentially can be both detrimental to their own relationships, but also how they view the people that they have those intimate relationships with. And uh, that's something that is clearly not a good thing for society. Yeah, I really agree with you on that. But the reality is that it's freely available. And I do worry, particularly for my children's generation as well, because, you know, ultimately it is very addictive. And the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And if we are losing that connection across the board in terms of being involved in so much digital activity for hours and hours on smartphones, digital activity at work, and then losing ourselves digitally to true romantic sexual activity as well. The whole root of what humanity is built on the family unit then is put into jeopardy. So it's just something I wanted to explore with you. It's something that I think is not talked about. It's just an interesting one I wanted to explore with you. Interesting, actually, my 
professional work in dealing with some people, particularly who there's sort of an overlap between people who use cocaine, who drink alcohol, particularly the binge drinking pattern and the use of porn. I've often found that the the three can sometimes go together in some people. And I think the process, if you like, of supporting somebody to recover and to begin to change how they engage with alcohol and street drugs and uh, pornography and the techniques we can use professionally are not entirely dissimilar in how we can help and support people you know who feel that they need help in that respect and and you know clearly you know developing intimacy and having a an intimate or a confiding relationship as you would find in a a traditional romantic relationship is one of the the best ways we can protect an, our own health and well-being if we can have a, a stable and a you know a solid relationship and helping people to find that for themselves and for the finding the person that that works for them is I think an important part of of life but we know that's also potentially very beneficial for people's mental health and well-being at all aspects and all stages of their lives. Absolutely. It's interesting you talk about the drugs and the porn going together, because I think what we've seen lately, you know, the Conservative conference was the pledge to ban smoking. I had my last cigarette, I don't know, 13 years ago, December 20, 2009, in Fiji of all places. It had a horrible effect. My grandmother died of emphysema. It was not something that has um, ever felt right with me, and I did it to be cool. And the good thing is, of course, it's not cool anymore. And that is the, you know, if it ever was. <laughs> but of course, we've now got vapes to contend with. But just coming back to my point, if we are following the science, to coin a phrase, if the smoking's being banned, why is alcohol which is known as a drugs gateway, a societal norm that is, dare I say it, even encouraged at the highest level of government to be used socially. When we know in 2023, we know that excessive alcohol is very damaging to health. Well, it's one of those great contradictions, isn't it? That we, you know, there are many street drugs that are currently illegal to, you know, either supply or, or possess which are probably less harmful than alcohol. Certainly, we know smoking, alcohol and obesity, the big three sort of public health challenges and killers potentially. Now, I think you've clearly done really fantastically well in giving up smoking. But the difficulty, I think, with a lot of things is that there is a social acceptance of them and society becomes accustomed to those substances and alcohol has become socially acceptable. So it's going to be... Whereas I think there's a general acceptance, even among smokers, that smoking isn't a, a good thing to do. So they, by introducing a, an incremental ban so that nobody who's currently, uh, I think the plan is anyone who's currently 14 or younger will ever smoke by raising the, the age at which it's legal to buy cigarettes by, by one year, along the lines of what they've done in New Zealand. I think that's a fairly good way of quite quickly generationally changing the approach towards cigarettes. The difficulty with alcohol is it is socially acceptable. It's one of those things that in moderation is, unless you're, you're pregnant or in certain groups, is thought to be you know of relatively minimal harm. I'm a personally a teetotaler and always have been, but it, it is something that has been accepted in society. Now, increasingly, we're seeing Generation Z, I think is then they're called the youngest generation, and millennials drink less than Generation X. 
And I think alcohol consumption is about 20% lower in millennials, about 20% lower again in Generation Z. So I think there is an understanding about the dangers of alcohol in younger generations compared to, say, my generation and older generations. And one of the most effective mechanisms that we have when there's a socially acceptable drug of driving down use is probably through price, and particularly price of the harmful, strong alcohols that often street drinkers and dependent drinkers drink. Like, for example, you'll recall the old White Nightling Cider or the Tenants Super Strong, the sort of purple purple tinnies, you know, that yeah. we, we sort of see. And I think those are the sort of things, I think having a building in a, a price mechanism where we have some sort of minimum unit pricing or increasing the amount of tax on certain types of alcohol um, which we know are associated more strongly with harmful dependent drinking is something I think government should look at more to discourage that sort of harmful drinking. And uh, it's something that I've been quite openly on record about before, but I believe that that's one of the most, if you start making it more expensive for people to buy, people can afford to buy less, therefore they drink less because they're buying less, uh, and that has therefore a lower impact on people's health. And I think that's probably the way that we will see um, alcohol policy going in the next five to 10 years. So it's, this policy is based on political gain rather than following the science? I wouldn't think there's any political gain to that. I think the moment you talk about minimum unit pricing, there's always an outcry because, you know, minimum unit pricing may well affect a cheaper bottle of wine, for example. You know, I, I think wine is usually 10, 12% in a bottle. You've got about 10 units in a bottle, roughly. So if you put it at 50 pence a unit, you know, you're looking at minimum of what five pounds a bottle for wine. So it does then have an effect on potentially on families on lower incomes in that respect as well. So there's always some collateral impact, which is less politically palatable for a government when you're introducing things like minimum unit pricing. But actually, my view as a doctor and my view just generally from looking at the policy, the policy around this is that something around the economics to make it more expensive to buy cheap, high alcohol content substances will undoubtedly help to improve the health of the nation by reducing the amount of units, particularly those who are more dependent and reducing the amount of alcohol that heavy drinkers drink. Okay, so this is a bit of a yes or no question (laughs) on the back of that. Are there special interests that want to keep the nation as a whole sick in the food, drink, pharmaceutical industries that have a significant effect on government policy? Undoubtedly, you know, just as you've got lobby groups who will lobby government to introduce new measures on smoking, for example, the recently announced plan to ban people under the 18 from ever being able to start smoking, you'll have lobby groups who will say that's a good thing. You're going to have the tobacco companies and other other companies who are going to be lobbying the other way. Now, the public health argument has won, it appears, on smoking. And from the exchequer's point of view, yes, of course, they make money from taxing cigarettes, but there's also a very high cost to society of people who develop smoking-related diseases or are off sick from work and less productive at work because they're off sick because of they're more susceptible to chest infections in the winter, for example, because they smoke. So for all of those reasons, you're going to have lobby groups on both sides. But ultimately, you know, on smoking, it appears that the public health argument 
has won. But on with the drinks industry, you're going to have lobby groups that lobby on you know pro alcohol and against things like I've just advocated minimum unit pricing. People who won't like that in gambling, you're going to have the gambling industry is quite powerful and they're often offering to MPs free trips and free visits to various sorts of things. It's nothing that I participate in, I hasten to add, but nonetheless, it is something that you you can find. They try and persuade MPs of their position and why there should be less curbs on gambling. In the United States, you've got, on a broader issue, you've got things like the gun industry and the gun lobby in America, who are very powerful and have a lot of money that they funnel into supporting pro-gun candidates in elections. So undoubtedly, in all aspects of policy and politics, there's always going to be uh, interested groups who are going to try and lobby government and or legislators um, to encourage them to take one view or the other. And sometimes you have to be quite brave in doing the right thing. And that was a brave answer. So thank you for, so I mean, I'm going to tick the yes box on that there are special interests because I feel that is so skirted in so many interviews I've seen and, and by many politicians. Because the reality is, I think we all know that nowadays as an electorate, we know this. So I come back to the, you know, the public health question. Why aren't there massive advertising campaigns in terms of health and community? Wouldn't the ROI be exponential to the taxpayer. A smart business would say, right, smoking, alcohol, porn, drugs, it's all costing the business much more than we're getting in sales. So why isn't the government more long-term thinking? It's probably one of the inefficiencies of democracy, (laughs) but why isn't the government more long-term? Yes, it may take a generation to do it, but is there, and I guess, again, coming from a more political angle here and asking you as a truthful, honest, authentic parliamentarian, what is the conversation or is there any conversation about what this looks like 20, 30 years down the line? Or are you just looking at the the present five-year term or four-year term? So I think a lot of politics in the UK and elsewhere is often dictated by the, the parliamentary term because that's the certainty you have of what change you can or cannot deliver. Now, certain global events, as we've seen recently with the war in Ukraine or, or the recent arrest in the, the, after the, the Hamas attacking Israel, and the, the fallout from that, and the, those sort of geopolitical events can derail, uh, have profound international consequences. And very few governments can anticipate that. But in a number of areas, most governments want to think, what can I show the electorate in three years if you're in Australia or if you're in the UK, four or five years? What can I show the electorate that I have achieved? So what is achievable in this period of time? And sometimes that can lead to some fairly short-termist thinking in some, some areas of policy. Yeah, again, you know, thanks for being honest about it. It's very refreshing. (laughs) I think the reality and the frustrations that so many people have, I guess I do, around mental health is that we aren't creating holistic healthcare. It's very much a treat the symptom, not the problem. There's a systematic issue that is not being addressed. And it's just like, well, what are we going to do to treat this tidal wave of mental health issues? And it's very much a pill-based society, whereas like, here's the issue, have a pill, go get better. Whereas in terms of the opposite of addiction is not 
sobriety, it's connection. What are we actually doing to build more connected communities? Surely it's worth the investment from a public finances point of view to actually address, not just have a minister for loneliness, but actually to have a department of community. I think a lot of people would go towards that and go, that just sounds sensible. The NHS was built on the basis that so much trauma had been had during the Second World War. People had more compassion, more empathy for one another. And therefore there was this right to do healthcare from cradle to grave so that no one suffers more than they should. And I think that that's why the NHS for a lot of people is so important. It's that element of we will be looked after whatever happens, that care for one another. That is what I would love to see on billboards <laughs> and to be and to see politicians talking about instead of ripping each other's heads off. It's like, how can we come together? How can we heal as a community? You hear it a lot in America at the moment. Kennedy, you know, as an independent coming through and talking about how Democrats and Republicans are trying to rip each other's heads off. Well, it's the same in this country, but it, we don't have that president to elect that gives us even a chance to have an independent view. I guess it is down to people like myself and, and other men and women who are working within communities to try and build those communities. But I would love to see the government support it. I feel financially it has such a massive ROI as well. We have had a system that is in mental health, the, a lot of the funding has been directed at picking up the pieces when people have reached a point of crisis, when people have got have become very unwell. And yes, of course, we're going to need inpatient wards. Of course, we need crisis services. But community mental health has become largely hollowed out as a concept and is, is probably the most poorly funded part of the general adult mental health system. So a focus on investing in community mental health services is essential. So we move the, we change the dial away from crisis to earlier support, earlier intervention. That's something that I would say to any government is, is where we need to be focusing on. So when you're in conversation with Jeremy Hunt or any of the cabinet, how do they react when you say we need to invest more in prevention rather than the cure? So one of the challenges here is that governments will want to be able to say, well, what have we delivered for mental health? We can say we've done that and that's a tangible thing. Saying we are investing in general mental health services is less of a, a concept that is easy to sell as, a, as something you've delivered if that makes sense in the same way to the electorate. And that's part of that problem with the political system. And in my view, from my own experience and what I've seen in healthcare, investing in good community, general adult mental health services is the thing that would make the biggest difference to move that point of intervention away from crisis and much more upstream to support people. It's very clear to a number of experts that AI is now more intelligent than the most intelligent human. And there are all sorts of amazing ways in which this technology is being used. For example, the cancer scans and AI being able to pick up pre-cancerous cells where the human eye just will completely miss them. Obviously, we've got an aging population. We've got an aging population which is sicker. All of those things taking in, taken into consideration, 
but we also all have smartphones. So how quickly can an AI GP be adopted so that a vast amount of money can be redistributed? Well, I suppose there are two things. There's also the, the issue, I suppose, of empathy, that, particularly if you're looking at mental health, the human interaction and the human engagement that can be involved in mental health. I think it'll take quite a long time for AI to be able to replicate that. But where I think AI is going has a real role in healthcare is, as you said, that sort of pattern recognition of how does when there might be maybe a tumour or, for example, if you're taking someone's blood pressure readings and heart rate, it's those kinds of things where I think AI is going to be very exceptionally helpful to healthcare professionals in the months uh, and years ahead. Um, and I would hope that we would see within five to 10 years, AI with the right safety parameters set around it, playing an increasingly important part in uh, our NHS and the wider health and care system. The challenge, though, is going to be making sure you've got the right safety protocols in place. And secondly, there are certain things that AI is going to struggle with in the short to medium term anyway, which are things like, for example, you know, you can't, the artificial doctor won't be able to listen to somebody's chest, for example, you know, if they've got, you know, they, or, or their heart in the same way. So there are those things where you will need the human present. With regards to the NHS, as we just talked about, do you think it's actually going to survive? Yes, I do. Yeah, I think it will survive. I think the challenge for the NHS, though, is it's not just about more money. It's about how we transform the way that we deliver care. Uh, and how we also, as part of that, can improve productivity of our staff and the way we deliver that care as well. And, and clearly, uh, technology is going to have a, a key part of that, a key part to play in that. So it's not going to be enough just to say, uh, which is the lazy politicians call, oh, the NHS needs more money. Yes, of course, with an ageing demographic and people needing more health care, particularly when they get older, we are going to have to better resource the NHS and the broader health and care system. But with that has got to go a transformation in care and improve productivity in and a transformation in the way we deliver that care to people. Mm. And that's got to be the, the way we do it. And uh, it would be wrong to give money without a clear understanding of actually what that transformation is going to look like. Yeah, sure. Okay. And, and if you are sitting in Rishi's seat, you, you have a total blank canvas and no one's going to stop you from doing what you're going to do. What would you do to bring the NHS back to health? So one thing what I would do, I would say, first up, we need to have a proper integration of health and social care. At the moment, we have systems that are funded differently. So the NHS is funded through central government. Social care is funded by local government and by local councils, effectively. And yet, for somebody who's in need of an older person who perhaps has reduced mobility or has quite complex medical needs, it's very difficult to understand where does healthcare end and social care begin, for example. Yet, you've got two different budgets and two different systems that kind of work together but don't work together. And there's duplication of systems um, and duplication of function. And a certain amount of silo working as well. So the one thing I would do would be to bring those systems together. But the other aspect that's often not talked about enough in health and care is housing. Because you talk about older people who may need housing adapted. You talk about younger people with disabilities. And a lot of young people are now living longer with disabilities that may well have been life-limiting uh, 20, 30 years ago. 
we need to also think about how housing is a part of the discussion about health and housing in communities more generally because we want to promote you know good health we want to promote resilience and it can't just be a conversation if we integrate health and social care about doing more of what we do now which is picking up the pieces when things go wrong and looking after people when they're in great need we need to bring the dial to having healthy well communities and part of that integrated model's got to be about you know supporting people to to stay well and those upstream interventions um, now some of that's public health we talked about smoking but some of it's also about promoting healthy communities and working with communities as part of a in my view a more localized health and care offer rather than one that's centralized centrally imposed from london or elsewhere i think that that is a very big change and it's a brave government that will make those sorts of changes but i believe in the nhs i believe that we have a, a fantastic model of care free at the point of need it is a great system if we're going to protect that mean that it's still fit for purpose in 20 30 40 years time we've got to think actually about how that care is delivered and if you go back before the nhs you know lot some of the healthcare was delivered through you know philanthropy and that was quite localized philanthropy and that was actually involving working with communities and and the like now that wasn't the model we want to return to but we need to try and draw something from that recognize that there were some benefits from having a much stronger link and and sense of sort of co-production with the community you're based in of how the health and care system locally work for me got to be part of where we end up but it's a brave government that pushes reform but in my view we the time has come to move the system forward for the benefit of the patients that we look after absolutely well thank you for answering all of that and all of the questions i guess i just have one more question for you which is how do you see next year going as in the general election yeah well i think if you were at the moment if you were Keir Starmer you'd probably be feeling fairly happy the party is uh, at the moment 15 20 points ahead in the opinion polls I think inevitably the polling position will narrow between now and a likely general election in about a year's time. But if you were wanting to be in one position or the other, I suspect you probably want to be in Keir Starmer's position at the moment rather than Rishi Sunak's. However, what you do find at this stage in the parliament is that opinion polls and views are often shaped by being more of a referendum on the government. And Rishi Sunak inherited a very difficult legacy from what happened with Liz Truss. And I think all of us can look at that and think uh, that's a period that we would wish had not happened. But he's done well, in my view, in stabilising the economy. And he's got a year now to show and what another five years of Rishi Sunak will look like. It's certainly going to be a difficult challenge for any government to win a fifth consecutive term. And we'll see where we are in a year's time. But, you know, Rishi Sunak knows what he needs to do if he wants to win. And uh, I'm sure he will do his very best to achieve it. Dan, thanks very much. And thanks for joining us on the Privileged Man podcast. Pleasure. So thank you for joining me, Pete Hunt, on the Privileged Man podcast. If you're interested in joining our exclusive community for men, please visit the website, theprivilegedman.com for more details. Thank you.